good afternoon, everyone. Well, now we're you back. Good afternoon, everyone. For those of you online, it seems there was some technical difficulty, but now you should be able to hear us. And I was just letting everybody know that we have Carolina Torres from Island Conservation from Ecuador that will be in person next week. And so if you would like to uh, make an appointment to see her, have a meeting with her, uh, please let Jen or myself know. We will also be sharing uh, a, a, a meeting schedule for, with everyone as well. And I'm gonna have McKenna Neal, a genetic student, introduce our, our speaker for today. So can I get McKenna up here? Hi, everyone. Um, I am thrilled to introduce Dr. Jennifer Kuzma. Uh, Dr. Kuzma is a Goodnight NCGSK Foundation Distinguished Professor in the School of Public and International Affairs here. She's also the co-founder and co-director of the GES Center here at NC State. Um, prior to that, she was an associate professor at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota and an AAAS Risk Policy Fellow at the USDA. Uh, she's currently working in the governance of emerging technologies. She earned her PhD in biochemistry at UC Boulder and completed her postdoc in plant molecular biology at the Rockefeller University. Uh, Dr. Kuzma has over 150 publications in several different topics, including emerging technologies and their social and ethical implications and governance systems. She has several international and national leadership positions, such as a member of the World Economic Forum Council on Technology and the AAAS ABS National Council of Scientists and Lawyers. Dr. Kuzma has been given many awards and honors for her work, as well as hundreds of talks and interviewed frequently in the media for her expertise in biotechnology policy. Thank you so much. There we go. Okay. Well, thank you all for being here today. It's my pleasure to talk about a somewhat new, uh, about a year old, um, Center on Precision Microbiome Engineering. And our team, which is leading out of GS, uh, out of the GS Center, the societal and ethical implications work of this center. So PREMIER, which is the acronym for Precision Microbiome Engineering, focuses on understanding microbiomes in the built environment and their interactions with human microbiomes and how they affect human health. And we have a variety of different research thrusts focused on measuring, modeling, and modifying the built environmental um, microbiome. So this is where the ties to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center come in, in that some of our work is, is related to the actual genetic modification of the microbiome. Although not all of the work is related to that, um, we're also talking about you know, mixtures of naturally occurring um, modified microbiomes as well. So it's important to understand that we spend about 74% or so of our time in the indoor environment, and that there's been connections to the indoor environment in a variety of diseases associated with the microbiome correlation. We're not sure about causation yet or the particular mixtures. Sometimes we can attribute to disease to a particular micro, but sometimes it's just the composition of the microbiome or the genetic um, amalgamation of the microbiome that we detect. And these linkages have been to obesity, IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, asthma, food allergies, and cardiovascular disease. 
And so we're really looking at, well, when people occupy buildings, what is the composition of the microbiome? How is it shared among participants in the building or occupants in the building? And how might this relate to the disease prevalence of these occupants? Um, and how do building engineering factors like the surfaces in buildings, the dampness um, and such relate to the uh, microbiome and how it impacts human health? So that's kind of the scientific subject of Premier. Um, the people involved, we have numerous people, and this doesn't capture all the PhD students and postdocs and senior scholars um, and industry partners involved in this work, but we have over 50 faculty from Duke, um, NC A&T, NC State, UNC Chapel Hill, and UNC Charlotte involved in this, um, in this center. And we are engineers, um, microbiologists, physicians, bioinformatics people, geneticists, evolutionary biologists, um, mycologists, um, microbiologists, and social scientists, us, <laughs> um, from, from these five universities. Um, Claudia Gunch from Duke is the center director. I am one of the associate directors or one of the five co-PIs on this project in addition to leading the societal and ethical implications core of, of the work. So again, you know, we're really what this and this is an engineering research center uh, funded by NSF. And what they are really asking for and what we are really trying to achieve is convergent research. So across different research thrusts and incorporating the societal and ethical implications into that work, all of the research thrusts. So we but we are divided just for um, organizational sake. Um, in the measuring, which is research um, thrust one of the microbiome. So how do we sample? How do we ensure reliability of sampling in buildings? Um, how can we measure the movement of microbiomes in buildings? The modifying, as I talked about, either through genetic engineering or through um, you know, other probiotic methods. Um, and the modeling, so a lot of quantitative modeling on how the microbes move through buildings and how they interact with humans and how they interact with each other in these, um, in these spaces. And then we also have a data analytics core, and again, a societal and ethical implications uh, core that is informing and embedded in all of these different um, research thrusts. And with an engineering research center, um, NSF really asks you to center around uh, uh, test beds because it's an engineering research center. And our test beds are hospitals, so the Duke Hospital. There's a home on the Duke um, campus that we're doing this work in. And then in Bolivia, there's more of a, a, of a natural site, if you will, where people are actually living, um, Bolivian homes. And then we have a couple um, artificial chambers that are also serving as test beds to kind of organize all this work. Um, and bring us together. So, and again, we're looking for these cross-institutional and cross-research um, thrusts and, of course, cross-disciplinary um, projects in order to study this problem. All right, but I want to, before I get into the substance of the problem a little bit more, I want to talk about what a long road it is to getting an ERC. <laughs> um, so, we began our um, our GF Center and I began to collaborate with Duke back in 2016. Um, before we actually received the grant in uh, September 2022. So, and we were looking there more on microbial dark matter. It was a science and technology center at the time. Um, and then we kind of, did, we got to the pre-proposal stage, we weren't invited, and then we began work as a revised team in 2018. We submitted a planning grant, 
We were looking at test beds across agriculture, energy, water, and health systems. So we were a little broader in that proposal. We submitted a proposal. It was invited possible. It was not invited for the final round. Um, and then we went through a round two with a pre-proposal again in September 2020. Um, and this time we focused more on the test bed on the indoor built environments. Um, and then uh, our grant you know, went through a full proposal, a site visit, and then awarded, this is a $25 million, $26 million project for five years with the potential to renew it for another 10 years. And our work really began in January, 2023, when we got the budgets and we were able to distribute them to the individual projects. So if you're going for one of these, don't give up because it is a very uh, long road, um, as Fred knows with the IGER and, and the NRT and, and we know with other kinds of grants. Um, it's good to go for them, but it, you're, you know it's gonna take a while to build your team and to, to get it right. Um, so we'll be working on this until September 2027. And if we do a good job until 2032, so this could be a long road we have. So we're at the very beginning of the work and there's a lot of unknown questions about the built microbiome and, and, and engineering it. We're just beginning to learn how to you know, reliably collect samples and to attribute this um, mixture of microorganisms to different um, types of human health outcomes. All right, so, but our, I wanted to point out that in 2017, you can't really see the title on the slide, but in 2017, the National Academy of Sciences came out with a report on microbiomes in the built environment. And so we were forming this new team around the built environment right about the time that this um, report came out. And so this report really, if you're looking for a good overview of this particular issue and the science behind it, there's a, there's a good introductory chapter um, that will serve you well, as well as a really good scientific chapter. I think the beginning of the report, it'll give you a good sense of the literature on, on where the associations have been made and where they haven't been. Um, and what this report concluded from the scientific standpoint is that there's a demonstrated link between exposures to infectious micro microorganisms presence in the built environment and human health. Um, and a num number of cases, the mechanisms of transmission either on surfaces or in airborne or aerosols are well understood, but more, much more can be learned about how built environmental design, like again, the surfaces, the airflows, the plumbing, um, temperature, humidity, that kind of thing, actually influences the proliferation and transmission of these infectious microorganisms. And then there's um, preliminary evidence that suggests that certain exposures, including early life exposures to diverse microorganisms are associated with animals, have beneficial health effects. So you may have heard of, you know, the more time children spend outdoors and farms and such, the, the healthier they are, the, the lower incidence of asthma and such, especially protection from allergy and, and respiratory symptoms. Um, and there's also a conclusion in there that says by separating ourselves from the outdoors, humans may have eroded the diversity of their own microbiome, um, which in turn, the diversity of the microbiome and exposure to it has been linked with a lower incidence of disease, especially of these um, respiratory illnesses. So those are some of the, um, some of the conclusions. I must have to point here. Sorry, Patty, I don't know why it's not moving. It was working. So, so again, um, all right, I already said, so the other conclusion <laughs> is that damp indoor settings are really important for these um, respiratory and aller allergic um, symptoms. 
But that impacts on non-respiratory illnesses are less well understood. And really interestingly enough, you know, things like um, um, neurological illnesses, like mood disorders, um, uh, fatigue, that kind of thing, there have been linkages to the microbiome in indoor environments, but it's really just preliminary. Um, and so further research would be needed to understand the reproducibility and generalizability of how these building conditions um, lead to um, these health outcomes. And so we're really looking at through our center, you know, this, it, this interaction between the occupants, the communities, the built environment, and the transport mechanisms, um, whether on air, water, or services. A lot of our work right now is focused on water and surfaces, in particular, plumbing-associated um, microorganisms. Here we go. Okay, and then the report also has some nice um, tables like this about the different kinds of, of, of bacteria, fungi, and viruses where there have been associate, associated illnesses and how their modes of transmission, whether through inhalation or surfaces. Um, we also have to worry about in our center the entry through the air systems, um, the transmission within the building, and then the exit. So there's a lot of complex kind of interactions within a building that you can think of um, that we worry about the transmission of infectious diseases. And then again, they can be transmitted through aerosols, through healing <laughs> particles, through ingestion um, of particles, as well as on, on um, surface contacts um, and, and um, re-aerosolization of, um, of, um, of airborne particles. Next slide, please. I don't know when this. Yeah. Okay. I don't know why that's not working. Just frozen. There we go. Okay, and then there's also um you know, a lot of different symptoms, like I said, are largely um, associated with um, respiratory disease like cough, shortness of breath, asthma, bronchitis that have been attributed to um, damp indoor environments. So also our work is going to be uh, focused on southeastern uh, uh, North Carolina in flooding areas where the buildings are quite damp. And so we have one project there going on on, on testing um, homes in that area and associating it with health outcomes and micro, the microbiome, the genetics of the microbiome and other biochemical markers that may um, be correlated with these particular um, health outcomes. But again, really interesting enough, you know, there are also some linkages to brain health headache, nausea, mood disorders, and difficulty concentrating and sleep difficulties, which are not really as well understood. Um, next slide. Oh, there we go. Okay. So um, the questions that we're dealing with, again, with that introduction on the science, is what building conditions support microbiome communities that benefit or harm human health? And how can we engineer the microbiome to uh, support human health? And how can building components be engineered? And what are their sensing and deployment of microbiome, uh, sensing of microbiomes and deploying um, micro, microbiomes like probiotics or engineered microbiomes can be developed to promote human health and well-being? Next slide. But interestingly enough, this report makes little to no reference of the societal and ethical implications that's needed to accompany this um, engineering and science and, and technology. 
Ethics is really only mentioned in the reproducibility of results. And societal and ethical implications work does not really appear in the detailed research agenda. Uh, and, and the social sciences is only mentioned in two recommendations, one to incorporate the social and behavioral sciences to analyze the roles of people who occupy the buildings and their roles in building and system maintenance. And the other is really more about unidirectional communication. So to educate people or to translate knowledge to people, um, the development of effective communication and engagement to convey microbiome built environment information to diverse audiences. So there's not really the kind of deep uh, societal and ethical work that we often talk about in the GES Center, which gives us a really nice um, gap in the literature to focus on this area for the built microbiome. However, there have been some people, you know, really in the last four or so years that have been coming together to develop a societal and ethical implications research agenda for general human microbiome um, science and technology, not the built environment and engineering of the microbiome, but general human microbiome work. And they've come up with a lot of different areas um, of an inquiry that would be possible uh, for such a societal and ethical implications agenda. So this one article by Greenhill et al. in 2020. So a lot of it is like, what, who is currently responsible for shaping governance of the microbiome interventions? That's a question that's really relevant to the work that we do in GS and that we will be doing with Premier. Who should be responsible and who should decide? Um, what public health interventions um, are taking place? What is, the, what is the current public consciousness and anxieties about hygiene and cleanliness and how might that relate to public perceptions of microbiome work? Um, who gets to know, diagnose, and manage the environmental microbiome? Things like privacy and ownership are super important also in, in this work. Because if you think about it, when you walk into a space, we kind of share the microbiome in a way with that space. We have our own microbiome that is in our body, but if you're going to deploy an engineered microbiome into the in environment, what kind of informed consent do you need? If you're detecting microbiomes in the built environment, you may be able to attribute the signatures to people walking into that space. You may be attributed someday to what they eat or how they behave um, or what their lifestyle is. So there's a lot of really important privacy and ownership issues associated with the microbiome. I'm having a hard time advancing yeah. again. Next slide, please, if you can get it. Oh, there we go, thank you. Um, so, so we've taken kind of a lot of these questions, you know, value, valuing and commodifying the microbiome, um, public engagement in the microbiome, some really philosophical questions too, like how has the microbiome changed the meaning of citizenship? You know, if we share the microbiome, um, does that mean that you're a citizen of your 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 you belong to that space, or how does it influence belonging and your individuality versus the community, for example? Um, do microbiomes have rights? That's even been one question that comes up in this article. So some really more deep philosophical questions, um, but we're going to be focusing more on the public um, engagement and perception, as well as privacy, ownership, and informed consent. Next slide, please. Okay, I'll skip over these. I think I covered pretty much. So really what we're trying to do with Premier then is take, you know, take the science that's been evolving around the built environment and microbiomes, in particular the science and the engineering that's going on Premier, 
looking at the literature on SAI work on general human microbiomes and bringing it together and, and doing filling this gap in the literature on the SEI of built microbiome um, engineering. And so this is our SEI core team. Um, I co-experiment by Joe Graves from NCANT. Andrew Hardwick, who's a PhD student in public affairs, is taking on a really uh, big role in our SEI core. I'll talk about one of his projects a little bit later. Christopher Cummings, who's a fellow with uh, GS. Joe Brown, who's a professor of public health and microbial risk analysis um, from UNC Chapel Hill. And then, of course, Patty and Sharon have been instrumental to the operations of this core. And we're soon going to be bringing Kristen, uh, Dr. Kristen Landerville on board, who's a science communication professor coming from University of Wyoming. She'll be a senior fellow um, in GS starting with us um, in November 2023. And we, we represent a, a variety of expertise areas associated with these people, as well as um, people we can rely on from the other institutions. Excellent. Okay, and I think I talked about this a little bit. Some of, so we're taking kind of this agenda and we narrowed it down to these areas that we're gonna be working on um, with Premier. Again, informed consent. So when we go into these homes in Eastern North Carolina and we're sampling the microbiome, you know, we wanna make sure that people understand what we're doing, that they have appropriate informed consent about what we're doing, and that we also uh, view it as an opportunity to gather their, their hopes and concerns about engineered um, microbiomes. We're gonna be doing some microbial risk analysis. Um, so when if you are to deploy an engineered microbiome into a space, what might be the risk issues to consider, the regulatory issues and the risk governance issues, public perception of microbiomes. There's, a, there's very little, little um, literature on this, especially in the built environment. In fact, there's no literature in the built environment. It's mainly on like fecal transplants, for example, um, in hospital settings. Privacy protection. So how do we protect people and, and secure the data so that, you know, signatures of people in spaces are, you're not able to track it down to individuals, or if you are, there's really good um, protection of that information and people feel comfortable with that. Equitable deployment of the technology. Um, social, environmental, racial, and procedural justice and decision-making, regulatory policies. This is a, a very kind of unknown regulatory space as well. Um, it, it really hasn't been. EPA has primary authority for genetically engineered microbes, but what about if you're deploying a, a probiotic microbiome in a built environment? Who has authority for that? Um, power relationships, and we're making sure that we're including historically marginalized group in both the research development and deployment, but also in how we study the societal and ethical implications. Next slide, please. And one of the principles that we're really building a lot of our work around is responsible research and innovation. And I think most of you know this area, but but my favorite um, my favorite. Uh, uh, definition of it is, is up here, an interactive process by which societal actors are mutually respond and innovators are mutually responsive to each other with a view on the ethical acceptability, sustainability, and societal desirability of the innovation process and its marketable products. So really what, what responsible innovation, responsible research and innovation does is to ensure that, that uh, research and innovation addresses societal challenges, that it opens the process to all actors and levels, and that we align our work within Premier to societal values, needs, and expectations. Next slide, please. And then there's four principles of re responsible research and innovation that we're framing our projects around. Anticipation, inclusion, reflexivity, and responsivity. 
Um, and so anticipating the potential impacts far upstream, so adding a forward-looking dimension to this. So a lot of these microbiome technologies, they're in the conceptual stage right now. Um, our center is nowhere near the deployment of engineered microbiomes yet, but in five years we could be, or even sooner. But we want to be able to anticipate the societal impacts further upstream, like now. Um, and so we're working in that regard um, by developing kind of the case study center around where our science and engineering research is going. Um, and then inclusion. So including people, including publics in, in, um, in actually steering the work of Premier in helping us to think about the science and engineering and how we should adjust the course of R&D in order to align it to public values. Reflexivity. Um, reflecting on our own assumptions and biases um, as scientists and engineers um, and our goals and our motivations and alternative framings of problems. And then responsiveness, taking all these activities and making sure that we're integrating it into the work of Premier, taking all these questions from anticipation, inclusion, and reflexivity and making sure that it influences what our center is doing. Next slide, please. And so this is just a conceptual di di diagram of how we are using our activities, taking RRI, and really aligning our activities with the principles of RRI. Next slide, please. And I don't think I don't think I have to uh, convince this group that you know the reasons to make sure that you're being inclusive and to engage with non-expert publics, you know, are both normative and that they have rights to have voice and choice in science and technology development. I mean, then also, you know, science and technology, especially when it comes to safety and risk governance, is socially constructed. And so who gets to decide and whose values are incorporated into what is safe is really um, is really an important question. And that that it's important to open up the process of that socially constructed notion of safety to a broader range of diverse publics and then outcome oriented to engender more transparency and trust, improve the course of technolo technological development. And also to foster capacity um, in the public to understand and participate in, in science and technology um, processes and research. Next slide, please. How am I doing on time? It's 12.30. Okay, I started hurry up. Okay, so I'm gonna skip these next two slides. Well, maybe I'll just, no, go back to this one. I'll just, I'll just in brief say, so what we're struggling with right now with Premier, with our inclusion work, is how to, cons all these questions that are so important with the um, process of engagement, you know, the timing of engagement, whom to engage, the purpose, methods, surveys, focus groups, consensus conferences, interviews, we're using a range of um, these three surveys, focus groups and interviews, um, but what is the subject engagement, especially when the science is so nascent and so, so young? Um, this engineered microbiomes in the built environment. So we have to develop, again, these somewhat hypothetical um, case studies in order to bring um, salience to the issues to the public. Next slide, please. And then also uh, different criteria to consider in engagement, making sure that it's, there's a provision of unbiased information, transparency of the process, do you want to be more representative of all of the U.S. public, or do you want to be more targeted, like the work we're going to be doing with households in eastern uh, North Carolina? Who should facilitate um, the boundaries on the you place on the issues to be discussed? So these are the things that we're struggling with right now in designing our inclusivity um, activities. Next slide, please. And some of this, um, some of these activities are already underway. So we just recently developed a nationally representative survey. Um, of the U.S. public, 
to uh, get people's hopes, fears, concerns, and issues and trust and governance associated with built um, environment microbiomes. So that is well underway and we are, it's right now an IRB approval and we'll be able to administer that uh, in probably in November. And that'll be the first kind of survey of the US public of what they think about engineering the built um, microbiome. So that's pretty cool um, in a way. But again, it's not, it, 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 it comes with a lot of problems because people are coming in with a lack of knowledge, a lack of salience of the issues. Um, surveys, of course, have their own methodological problems. Um, it's not a deep form of engagement, but it's something that at least we can get a temperature of, of what people think about it. We also have begun some in-depth interviews with the stakeholders and innovators um, associated with Premier, and those are underway. Uh, we hope to, in the future, once the test beds get uh, more underway, like the homes and the hospital, to, to be able to do some more in-depth interviews with people surround, who work in those test beds or who live around them um, or are uh, occupying them. Um, and But again, we're, we're still in the sampling and modeling stage right now, not necessarily the deployment stage. So, And we're also um, always concerned about feeding all this back to the research team um, in order to influence the work that we're doing. Eventually, next year, we're going to be planning to have some engagement events in partnership with four DIY synthetic biology labs across the country. So those um, venues are going to provide a space for us to engage more deeply with the general public or probably the more science attentive public um, by partnering with those DIY um, synthetic biology labs. So again, we've begun some of the activities. We're hoping to do a lot more in the future, including the engagement with the DIY um, community labs. Next slide, please. And so Christopher Cummings has been involved in designing the um, survey with uh, several of us from the SCI working group. And I think I, I talked about this probably enough, but again, it's gonna be the first nationally representative survey. And again, we're gonna be using it to, again, align it with, align the public values with the work of the premier. We're gonna be looking at how science and technology beliefs, worldviews, and personal characteristics um, influence and trust in, in scientists, engineers, government, et cetera, different stakeholder groups influence public opinion on engineered microbiomes. Next slide. And again, we're developing some case studies, um, somewhat hypothetical, but things that Premier is driving towards on um, deploying um, engineered microbiomes in hospital sinks. So one of our um, team members is, is working on developing capsules of either probiotic or engineered microbiomes to deliver into um, sinks and the plumbing in sinks to influence the microbiome and make it more healthy or <laughs> uh, replace bad um, um, infectious microorganisms with um, good or beneficial ones. So that's one of the case studies. Sensing the microbiome and then having an HVAC system deploy airborne beneficial microbes is another one. And then also deploying beneficial microbiomes in temporary emergency shelter structures. So we're working on these case studies and developing them. And we're going to be testing a lot of different um, theories on risk perception, in addition to getting some very practical input into um, the work of Premier um, for um, what, pe what people think and what are their hopes and concerns about this technology. Next slide, please. You can skip this one. I think I just talked about that. Um, we're also working with the actual engineers who um, are 
um, working on engineering the microbiome and doing a regulatory risk analysis. And we're making sure, and we haven't begun this work yet, but we're going to begin it towards the end of year two. We're going to make sure that we get stakeholder input into helping us scope the risk problem so that, again, it's a more engaged and inclusive um, approach to risk analysis on, on what are the risks and what are the risk governance issues associated with the work that our engineers do. Next slide, please. We've also had a lot of projects focused on the principle of reflexivity. So we hosted a journal club. Um, our SCI group hosted a journal club last year, and we really had um, uh, some great discussions with the scientists and the engineers in Premier about, um, uh, the one was about participant informed consent and data sharing, and, they, and one was about data collection to what we call ghost variables. So attributing microbiomes wrongly to race or to, to gender or sex, when in fact, um, microbiome differences may be more influenced by socioeconomic conditions, access to clean water, access to healthcare, or, or racism, structural racism. So we developed two policies from these journal clubs that premier um, career researchers and engineers are hoping to implement in their work, or I have promised to implement in their work. And one is that making sure that we always share the results of what we're doing with study participants, regardless or not if they have clinical relevance. The standard of bioethics is really if they have clinical relevance to share the results, but we really wanna go further than that and always feedback the results of what we're doing to the study participants. And then the second is to make sure that we're collecting when we do data collection, make sure that we're trying to really get at the underlying socioeconomic structural factors that are showing up in differences of the microbiome attributed to race or gender, but really are more related to racism or structural drivers of racism or access to healthcare, access to green spaces, et cetera. Okay, next slide, please. We're also hosting a workshop um, in May, that there's going to be a session open to the public that you'll be invited to. Um, that our goals is to develop a consensus article on an SCI agenda for the future of built microbiome engineering to really link our community, um, our SCI community, with the national and international groups that have been studying this in the past for the general human microbiome, and to engage uh, scientists and engineers in SCI um, uh, conversations. One of the inputs to that workshop, next slide please, is gonna be a literature review that we just finished um, drafting. It's in review right now, where we took, we did a very structured um, literature review using the PRISMA method. I won't go into that in the interest of time. to look at all the articles that somehow mentioned microbiome, indoor built environment, and a variety of uh, social and ethical implications terms. There was only one article that focused entirely on the built environment. So we had to kind of broaden it more to microbiome and SCI terms. And we did a literature review of that. You can see the literature is growing, but there's still a lot of gaps with the built microbiome. And we were able to type the different themes in the literature to um, ethical principles um, and sub kind of societal issues and implications that related to those ethical principles. So there was a lot, in the, lot more in the literature on public understanding, of course, and policy and regulation, and considerably less on engagement, um, risk, um, invasive methods, um, et cetera. So, so we were able to see where there's more gaps and more literature versus less literature. Next slide, please. Um, and so 
and we came up with, um, again, kind of like a, 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 an assessment of the gaps and the strengths of the literature today. But again, really um, dearth of literature on SCI and the build microbiome. Next slide, please. All right. Finally, and this will be, I'm probably doing it in time. 240. Okay. And this will be one of the last things I talk about. Um, finally, a really important project that Andrew's doing with Joe um, Graves, Andrew Hardwick, who was an NRT student, um, is to really look at social equity through this issue of ghost variables. So I talked already about ghost variables, but this will be the first to study how socially defined race and sex and gender um, are, are used um, and, and attributed to different differences in microbiomes in the built environment. So he's going to systematically, he's already exploring the built environment and microbiome literatures and the gray, gray literatures, as well as academic literatures to evaluate the narratives that are used for race, gender, or cultural attributions that are really likely these ghost variables for underlying associative factors like socioeconomic differences, pollution, healthcare, or structural drivers like racism, sexism, and colonialism. And then again, this, this work will, will help our, our, the scientists and engineers in Premier try to collect data that really are, are trying to get at these more underlying and associative factors and structural drivers rather than just data on race, sex, and gender differences. So I think it's a pretty exciting project. Next slide, please. Um, and it lines well with the new National Academy's report on using population descriptors in genetics and genomics research. Um, where the recommendations of the report, Premier is, has proposed adoption of to avoid typological thinking about human population descriptors and genetic results or microbiome results is kind of where we're going with this. And instead to collect these environmentally relevant factors in your study design and to engage communities in how they self-identify and the preferences for involvement. Next slide. So Andrew is looking at how these narratives develop. He's using a narrative policy framework and cultural theory, how these narratives develop in the academic literature, how they get translated into the media and into policymaking, and how in turn policymakers come back and fund or regulate things um, with regard to um, race and gender and, and um, sex. Next slide, please. So finally, we are um, not only do we have these research projects that you know we're kind of SCI is is responsible for and taking to advance the field of SCI for microbiomes in the built environment, but we also are embedded in five research projects of Premier directly. So I already mentioned um, you know the fungal contamination in southeastern um, U.S. North Carolina built environments. We're going to be doing focus groups and surveys of households and areas with uh, probability of fungal contamination, working with the scientists and engineers collecting the samples to ensure good informed consent, assess the socioeconomic aspects of the problem, and examine people's hopes, fears, and desires for microbiome engineering. And feeding back our research direct into the team as SEI is fully integrated into the team, you know, in these meetings. We're doing a similar thing for the evaluation of sync bioaerosols project. Next slide, please. We're also doing a similar thing for the microbe um, uh, redline, looking at the issue of redlining, which is really unfair, um, unfair lending practices that leads to racial segregation, and looking how microbiomes differ in redlining, um, redlined areas versus non-redlined areas. We're going to be doing a similar type of thing of ensuring good informed consent. Um, uh, making sure that communities are in, involved in, in their perspectives and concerns are incorporated. 
I already talked about the project with the engineering and the risk assessment. And then also we are um, also engaged in a project on um, helping to develop best practices for sampling buildings to make sure we're sampling diverse buildings that encompass when we develop this um, building genome collection, um, different cultural, social, economic, and geographic contexts. So we're highly embedded in five projects. Um, we've got about four projects that we're doing to advance the field of SEI, as well as supporting these teams um, in Premier. We're quite busy for a small team. Um, next slide, please. So that's why we're really excited for um, Kristen to come on board. Next slide. Okay, so that's it. I'll, I'll leave the rest for um, feedback and discussion, but you know we're excited about this. It, it's, it's a big effort. I'm excited that we're going to be able to actually embed these principles in the work of Premier in, in a more tightly integrated way than what we've done in the past with research teams. It's still evolving. We're still, you know, getting our feet off the ground. Uh, it's been nine months, but it still feels like, you know, we're, we're finally ramping up and the work is starting to um, take off. So thank you for listening to that. Okay, let me um, just remind people online that if you'd like to ask a question to Jennifer to use the raise your hand function, or if you'd like me to read it for you, put it in the chat. Um, and we will start with Dana Pearls, who has asked, is there sufficient understanding about how the human microbiome functions and what the unintended impacts could be? Yeah, no, that's a really um, good question. I think it depends on the the system you're looking at. I think there's a lot more work done on, on like, for example, fecal transplants in, in, a, in a clinical setting. In the built environment and in microbiomes, no, not really. It was really the data I showed you at the beginning where we've been able to attribute environmental microbiomes in the built environment to respiratory disease mainly. So when you modify or influence that microbiome in the built environment, we're gonna have to be really careful about how we're doing it and what the potential unintended impacts of that are. And to be honest with it, no, there's a dearth of information in that area. A lot of unknowns. And I think that's why it's it's even more important that we have this SCI work integrated in the team um, to make sure that that we're doing that in a, in a very careful and responsible way. And again, I don't think, you know, we're not even there yet. So we're looking at these issues kind of far upstream of when these technologies would be employed. I mean, I'm going to guess maybe at least uh, three, four years. You know, we're still focused on measuring, modeling, and attributing. And I think once that occurs, they're going to start thinking about modifying. The modifying um, is probably going to take place first in our test chambers, you know, in these artificial chambers in the lab. And I think from there, we'll be able to get a sense. I mean, it's, it's an artificial environment. That's why there are artificial test chambers. But, but you know, that's where it's going to start. And it, it won't progress until we at least have some understanding in, in the artificial test beds, if you would. Or the Duke home may be the first place where it starts. They actually have a whole house on Duke campus that's dedicated to this project where we can um, manipulate the engineering. We could eventually manipulate the microbiome. And I think that's where it would start. And that's where we would learn about the potential unintended consequences. And then we would have to really move carefully outside of that lab. And of course, this would be regulated in some form, hopefully by, by some government um, agency as well to get an outside check uh, of that as well. So good question. Katie. Um, thank you. And I'm really excited to see a lot of that structural work happening. Um, I think 
And building off of the unintended consequences question, I think COVID showed us that uh, people living with immunocompromised conditions kind of got activated as a stakeholder group. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering to what extent and how might that that activation of the stakeholder uh, group influence the work y'all are doing and sort of the ethics of recruitment. Oh, that's a really great question. Um, again, we're not recruiting people yet. And again, it's probably a good five years down the road, you know, to actually have people in spaces where we're modifying the, the um, microbiome. Um, but it's a really good point that I hadn't thought about, you know, like when we're engaging participants to make sure that we're engaging in immunocompromised groups, um, as well as making sure that we're, we're, you know, getting a diversity of different socioeconomic, different, um, different types of people. But um, yeah, no, great point. Really great point. Me being one of them, I mean, that would be, uh, yeah. Uh, two things, and, and part of it may reflect back to what was just asked. You know, I remember taking a group of students doing their alternate service break to Southeastern North Carolina. Yeah. Environmental justice. Too. Yes. And that whole initiative started. We first went to uh, Lumberton. This mm -hmm. is within a year or two after the major storm that it, oh, it, it flooded 95. Yeah. But it turns out a cousin of mine was on the city council. So he offered to tour us around the city to show what the impacts of the water, yeah. both yeah. relative to the flooding of the water treatment facility, communities that were still engaged in trying to recuperate from yeah. the damage. And so we know within these settings in the Southeast, you know, this whole notion of fungal contamination. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Those, those are the aspects there. The two queries that I have in regards to this, which might be down the road, is there an ethical way, or you see envisioning a citizen science component in all this? And then two, I like the aspect of the, the concerns for um, issues around privacy and the like. We know, of course, that Home sales can be impacted by the, yeah. the identification of fungal contamination and this, that, and the other. What does that mean for how this study plays itself out in communities if once you get to that level of engagement? Yeah, that that is those are fantastic points, especially the home sales. I, I hadn't even I hadn't thought of that either. You know, that that the presence of fungal mold absolutely could affect the sale of your home. Um, right now, that particular team is working on the measurement side of it and haven't gone to the houses yet. The site is, is going to be Beaufort. Um, so, you know, that'll be maybe a little bit, um, we'll still need to really think about those things. Um, so we haven't actually begun that work yet. We're in the process of planning for it. But I definitely think once we start to sample down there, we're definitely going to have to think of really good privacy um, protections for people. Yeah, and of course the the data is always anonymized and um, and and held on a private server and all those things you have to do for um, IRB, especially especially if you're collecting um, household surveys as well. In fact, that part is more regulated than going in and just collecting samples. <laughs> to be honest, the social science work is more regulated than the sometimes the the, the scientific work. 
when they're collecting samples. They can go in there and collect samples. They don't necessarily need IRB, but we need IRB if we're going to ask them questions. <laughs> so at least that's covered, you know, that we're going to have to protect the privacy of the data. But you've given me some other additional things to think about that I, that I appreciate. The citizen science aspect? The citizen science, you know, in the microbiome literature, there are quite a few citizen science aspects. We haven't thought about it in the context of that particular project, but I think it's a really good idea to get the people involved in the collection of data. And then making sure, of course, they're also um, involved in, in, in getting the results back and helping us interpret the results. And, and really, there's a lot of transparency in both directions. So that's a really great idea. I'm not, um, we don't have citizen science here as part of our SCI projects, but I'm gonna bring that back to the team for sure, the ones that are um, uh, working on the sampling. So thank you. Great, great questions. Yeah, Lisa. Hey, um, I think this is really very interesting and cool and it's great. The timing of things seems really important. Um, I'm curious if part of your vision of success of the SEI component of this work is the ability to tie the work to larger scientific or like normative scoped issues. So I think like an example that comes to mind is hospitals. Like one of the reasons why some pathogens get out of control in hospitals is because of antibiotic resistance. Yeah. So do you think that maybe in the reflexivity component, there can be ties to, to larger scientific or change initiatives? Absolutely. I mean, one of our projects is focused on AMR and, and, um, uh, tracking AMR in different built environments and hospitals. So, but I think, you know, your, your question about success is, is really important. I think success, there's, there's a lot of different metrics for success with this. One of them for me is just to instill SCI thinking with the scientists and engineers working with Premier. And I think that's starting to happen. And, and Certainly the leadership team is super supportive of the SCI implications and we're receiving a good chunk of the budget to do this, um, you know, about 10, depending on how you count it, but about 10 to 15%, which is really a good chunk of a budget like this um, for SCI work. So that's one metric of success. The other metric of success for me would be to get some, to, to, to really demonstrate some feedback from the public engagement that influences the research team in a really um, profound direction. I think that would be another metric of success. And I wish I was giving this talk, I was hesitant to give this talk today for the clothing because our work is so early. Um, but hopefully when I give it again in three years, I'll be able to demonstrate that. I can't right now. I can, I can demonstrate that our journal club that we had has got people talking about those two policies. I mean, we haven't informally written them down as policy 2.1 for Premier yet, but we have these informal policies about the collection of um, data on socioeconomic factors as opposed to just race and gender and sex. Um, and we also have that policy about always reporting the results back to the participants, um, regardless of whether they're clinically or relevant or now. Um, so I'm excited that we've already influenced Premier in that way, and we've already got people talking about these things. Um, but I would hope to give this talk in three or four years and say, hey, we collected this from our focus group with people in southeastern North Carolina, Beaufort area, and they were really concerned about this, and our team responded in this way. That would be a really great metric of success. I mean, I think we'll have no problems advancing the literature in SCI in this area. I'm not worried about the scholarly stuff as much. 
I think what you know my my bigger and it's not a concern, but my bigger um, achievement would be the, the influencing the science and engineering that's going on and really being embedded. I mean, right now we are embedded. We're starting to embed, but really being embedded, fully embedded. And there was a question on racial. There was pushback on that policy. Uh, the there was pushback on that policy, and we even had pushback on it yesterday at our scientific. We had a science advisory board meeting up at Duke yesterday. We had pushback on the on the sex and gender thing too, um, and yeah, there was pushback. <clears throat> but sometimes it is hard to. Sometimes in order to, if you're, if and, and the National Academy Report, I mentioned the 2020, the 2023 one on um, genomic data and um, avoiding typological thinking about race and sex and gender. Um, that one was has a really nice table in it that shows you when it is good to collect, you know, people socially um, identified um, race or or gender or sex. And that's when you're studying inequities. So when you're really studying inequities, you wanna collect that kind of data. But when you're studying biological differences, um, sometimes those biological differences are attributed to that racial categories or sex slash gender categories. And it really shouldn't, it's really not that. And it can stigmatize people in a certain way, right? So that's when you really need to be careful about, about not just collecting that, but collecting these underlying factors that are really the causes that point to a structural or racial or um, sexism. So yeah, there was pushback from some of the people on the data core. We did talk about it quite a bit. Because sometimes you can't collect data on everything, you know, in one study. Like you can't, it gets to be too unwieldy. Yeah, Jen. Uh, there's a question from Kristen Landry's book. Hey, Kristen. <laughs> and she can't wait for you to start. <laughs> can't be soon enough. <laughs> and she asked, I'm curious if there's any research about how microbiomes or microbiome engineering has been portrayed in media, either news media or entertainment media. There's often unintended consequences, runaway science, opening Pandora's box, Absolutely. all of those terms or quotation marks kind of um, frames and entertainment media surrounding new and emerging science. Yeah. Is there any evidence of that happening with microbiomes? And then she says, just to add some context, I asked this because media narratives can influence people's attitudes about emerging science issues. No, that's a really great question. I assume there is. Patty would know better than I because she studies science fiction a lot. And not very really, much yet. I mean, there's, you know, it, I think your question is, is there like a Jurassic Park mm -hmm. or kind of reference to Jurassic Park for microbiome engineering? Not sure, but that would be a really great thing for you to study, Kristen. <laughs> Does anybody know of any yeah. <laughs> media narratives? Yeah. Just listen to a podcast on armpit odor and how, and they proposed the idea that if you are someone with really stinky armpits, you could rub armpits with someone with a different <laughs> armpit microbiome. Interesting. And uh, there's one other one too, and not safe podcasts. But there's also some work from NASA about um, changing your microbiome for you in space. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, say that again. Changing your microbiome. It's for mood disorders. For mood disorders in space. Mm -hmm. There's a project that NASA's doing for that. Yeah, 
Yeah, the food industry is actually all the time. That's really interesting. Yeah, because the National Academy report said that that was under an understudied area, but there was some correlation that they found the mood disorders. So that's really interesting. I think what Kristen is referring to more is like, you know, in a news article, if, if you're genetically engineering an animal, like a, a pig or, or a cow or something, you know, you'll get reference or trying to even the de some of the de-extinction projects like the woolly mammoth from the, um, you know, you'll get references to the Jurassic Parks, Park scenario in, in the media. They'll directly reference that. I'm sure there are, Kristen. I'm none are popping to mind right now with with you know the superbug kind of narrative. You know, you're gonna engineer this superbug that's gonna just like flesh eating bacteria that's gonna destroy everything or something. The closest I can think of is they re they remade the Andromeda strain or made a and then, I mean it's you know that's the yeah. virus or something. Absolutely. It's, it's still adjacent to some of the questions. Yeah. That yes. was an earlier film <laughs> show, as I recall, dealing with fungal. Infection. Oh, the zombies. The zombies. The zombies. Yeah. I can't think of the exact name of the film, but I think the that's girl, probably. The Girl with All the Gifts was a book yeah. movie about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. That was yeah. probably a, that's probably the closest. Yeah. yeah. What was the name of it? The Girl with All the Gifts is a book turned movie about the. There's like an ant fungus that yeah. can, like, the fungus can make the ant do like robotic basically. Okay, this is really interesting, <laughs> and I'm sorry, but we have to we have to close for today because it's eight o'clock. Um Jennifer might be able to stick around for a few minutes if you have extra questions. But um <laughs> there anyone who needs to go on to the next. <laughs> so thank you uh for coming and uh just a reminder that Carolina Torres from Island Conservation who is stationed in Ecuador will be here in person next week. So if you would like to meet with her, please let me know and we will get you on the schedule. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.